Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Leisha, one of your hosts today. Hi, everyone. I'm Francesca. You might recognize my voice from the first episode of the season as an author. As a new addition to the Life Out Loud family, I'm very excited to host for the first time. And I'm Rebecca, also one of your hosts today. We are still doing the podcast over Zoom for the first season ever. And we're once again so happy to be able to virtually see each other despite this pandemic. And I'm Evelyn. And once again, the audio might be a bit different from what you're used to as we are not in our usual studio, but the stories are just as impactful as always. And I'm Riley, another one of your returning hosts today. And I'm RJ. Thank you for joining us on this third episode of our fifth season entitled His Whole World. And I'm Samantha. In this episode, two female authors paint a careful portrait of a specific man in their life. Their nows, their thens, their dreams and aspirations. And I'm Karen. Now, let's get into these stories. This story is by an author who is choosing to remain anonymous. Anonymous is a student veteran who possesses a soft spot for creative endeavors and outdoor adventures. Although at times Anon can be incredibly indecisive, she's resolute in her passions and stands firmly by the crazy idea that life is a journey. A warning that this story touches on very sensitive topics that may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Let's take a listen to this piece by Anonymous entitled Desert Divide, read by Rebecca Singh. I saw war for the first time shortly after my 21st birthday when I deployed to Afghanistan. There was a powerful thirst to prove myself, an idea formed from an idealistic view of wanting to make a difference. I certainly didn't feel what many people, my family included, expected me to feel. Hadn't I seen the war films and read the news? Perhaps they were right. Perhaps I should have acknowledged fear at the prospect of leaving behind all I had ever known, or, at the very least, for the conflict itself. But I didn't. I felt only the weight of my own expectations and the cumbersome rucksack resting upon my back. My unit was dispersed as support for multiple maneuvering elements across the country. There were no familiar faces to greet me, once I stepped off of the UH-60 Black Hawk helicopter in Garamsir District, Helmand Province, Afghanistan. The place I would call home for nine months. My friends joked that I'd gotten the short end of the stick. No one wanted to be stationed in southern Afghanistan. It was far too hot with temperatures soaring to nearly 140 degrees during the summer months, and the living conditions were labeled austere, by even military standards. I soon learned that Helmand province was cleverly dubbed Hell Man for more than just its blazing heat. 
On my first night in country, the jarring pandemonium of indirect fire awakened me. Unfamiliar alarms preceded the impact of mortars around our shabby canvas tent. A sharp elbow rammed into my side as I rolled off my flimsy cot and into the soldier on the ground beside me. I'd never seen him before, yet I immediately recognized the look in his wide eyes. It was a direct reflection of my own internal panic. I distinctly remember a recorded voice directing us to seek cover in a bunker outside. The tone was authoritative and calm. I obeyed on instinct. With my M4 assault rifle clenched tightly in both hands, I scrambled to my feet. It was pitch black in the small living quarters. The opening flap of the tent served as a guide, allowing the outside moonlight to filter in as bodies piled out. This was my first experience with raw adrenaline, and it hindered more than it helped. I tripped along an unfamiliar path on faltering legs. The air exploded overhead, creating a reverberation so loud I couldn't tell where the ground ended and the sky began. My eyes latched onto the concrete safe haven ahead. I saw nothing else. Other soldiers packed into the bunker behind me. We stood shoulder to shoulder, several of us half hunched over in the small space. I cannot remember my inner thoughts regarding the danger of that night. But those rocket attacks eventually became routine, serving as an unpleasant wake-up call. You can't outrun it! Upchurch yelled after the newly arrived soldier dashing for a bunker. Seven months of listening to the overhead alarm system had ingrained it in my mind. What may have been comforting long ago was now irritating. I didn't see the point in running. The mortars obeyed only gravity. Laying on the ground or cowering beneath a layer of concrete would not change that. Upchurch was right. You can't outrun it. Though I sensed he was talking about more than just enemy fire, he had a brusquely philosophical way of speaking. Words spoke out loud, but seemingly part of a deeper conversation that I wasn't privy to. Even then, after heckling the fearful soldier, he repeated his statement quietly, chuckling to himself between puffs of his cigarette. I sat beside him on a rickety wooden picnic table designated as the smoke pit. I didn't smoke, and we didn't talk much, but we had been together in country the longest. Our exchanges were now personal in nature. We only shared the present. Upchurch stood tall and thin at a height beyond six feet. He spoke low and slow, each syllable released through a distinct drawl. The only things we had in common were our age and rank, <laughs> and the ability to laugh at almost any situation. Upchurch didn't travel anywhere without his M249 machine gun or dry sense of humor. I admired his ease and steadiness of character. He handled the stresses of combat well, and everyone trusted his judgment while outside the wire. Both of us were in the final stretch of our deployments, close to the point where most soldiers began counting the days until they journeyed home. Neither of us believed in that particular tradition. Somehow we felt content. Fear had been replaced with weary acceptance. Almost to the point of mundanity, war was predictable in its chaos. Two more months passed before I thought of fear again. The emotion churned around my stomach, 
blending with anxiety as I loaded my gear onto a C-17 aircraft and watched Afghanistan fade into the distance. Military travel was always arduous. It didn't matter if you were coming or going. Seating existed in limited supply, and the lack of sleep and personal hygiene made everyone irritable. I fell asleep somewhere over Kuwait, only to be jostled awake and herded onto another aircraft a few hours later at a small airport in Germany. Time zones flickered by through a caffeine-induced haze. The trip separated me from reality. We landed in North Carolina during a thunderstorm. It was the first time I had seen rain since I had left the United States. It was less calming than I remember. I spent the next several months smiling through moments of strained patience. Everything and everyone filtered through my ears at an increased volume. From the middle-aged mother screaming at the gas station attendant about an unavailable pump, to my new platoon sergeant yelling about uncut grass and unwashed Humvees, I quickly resumed my army garrison lifestyle of physical training and office work, this cycle occasionally broken up by the readiness exercises and military classes, preceded a promotion and more responsibility. My company commander pushed me to work in the S2 shop of the battalion headquarters, in a staff position that closely resembled the cubicle-like work I had joined the army to avoid. I despised my new office. Not for its broken AC unit or mildew-covered floor, but because of the noise. I heard everything from that small corner of the building. Even after I learned to ignore the muffled arguments echoing from beyond the peeling walls and the sergeant major's loud retelling of old war stories, the gossipy whispers somehow crept up from the cracks beneath the floor. But relief came each day as I returned home. Only in the silence of my own barricade's room did I find peace and solitude. Less than a year later, my unit leadership acted surprised when I decided not to re-enlist. Just like that, it was over. Five long years of my life were handed back to me in the form of discharge papers. The process of exiting the military was much easier than entering. It involved more pamphlets than actual paperwork each advertising a different career opportunity or VA benefit. The only dreaded aspect of outprocessing remained the medical evaluation. I knew I would be prodded physically and mentally. It was an unavoidable step. So I begrudgingly made the trip to one of Fort Bragg's ancient medical clinics. The brick building wasn't a fully equipped facility and it was tucked into one of the forgotten corners of the base. As I stepped into the waiting room of the clinic, I wasn't surprised when the receptionist failed to look up from her computer. She offered no greeting. I took a number and found a seat in one of the mismatched plastic chairs arranged in crooked rows around the room. Smith? A voice asked from nearby. There hadn't been anyone else in the waiting room when I arrived, had there? Sudden dread emerged at the idea of forced conversation. I half turned in my chair and blinked in surprise. Sitting in the corner of the room was Upchurch, who I hadn't seen since redeployment. His appearance was startlingly different from what I remembered. 
A once tan complexion was now ghost-like beneath the clinic's bright artificial lighting. There was an uncharacteristic hunch in his shoulders and an anxious bounce to his knee. Gone was the sandy-haired, confident soldier who had blended into one of the world's harshest environments. I couldn't wrap my head around his presence in the out-processing clinic. The army was his life. I couldn't imagine him doing anything else. Getting out, he asked dully, referencing my purpose for visiting the clinic. The question was uncharacteristically serious. I nodded and made a pitiful joke about being sick of the army's dog and pony show. Upchurch barely cracked a smile. I listened as he told me about his forced medical discharge and irreversible back injury. I didn't know how to respond. I knew how much the army meant to him. The entire conversation was awkward. Upchurch and I had become friends in a desert thousands of miles away, but in a place we both called home, we behaved like strangers. A firm silence settled between us, interrupted only by the ticking clock and the disinterested typing of the receptionist a few feet away. There was an almost comical rhythm to how our eyes danced in a circle, desperate to avoid contact. Mercifully, an army doctor emerged and called my name. Ten minutes later, I was heading out the door as Upchurch's name was called. He looked at me and threw up a silent peace sign. Our eyes met briefly, and only then did I catch the glimpse of fear and doubt. I later convinced myself that I had read the emotions wrong. After all, I barely knew him. Six months later, while working as a contractor in Afghanistan, an old colleague informed me of Upchurch's passing. The doctors called it an accidental drug overdose. He had been prescribed a variety of powerful painkillers for his back injury and had somehow taken the wrong combination of medications. I never got the full story, which made it difficult to understand. Even now... I'm not sure what I believe in regards to Upchurch's faith. I do know that the army had been a way of life for him. No one soldier reacts to combat the same. I'd seen people run towards conflict and others away from it. I'd watched some soldiers grow weak at the sight of blood and others thirst for it. Upchurch had been caught somewhere in the middle. There was a thrill in war, but his bravery and true happiness had come from protecting others. Being a soldier had given him purpose, and without it, he had become lost. <sighs> Upchurch's death opened the door for fears that had been lurking in the shadows since my departure from the army. Whereas he had been so sure of his identity... I felt split between different versions of myself. Who I was in the mirror was not the same person reflected in the eyes of my loved ones or colleagues. In the first few weeks of my civilian life, I ventured home to Michigan to see my family. My mom cooked a big dinner and invited everyone over to celebrate the upcoming holidays. I spent most of the evening watching from a careful distance 
as my family and friends exchanged stories. It surprised me how many memories were unfamiliar to me. Suddenly, in a room full of my closest relatives, I wasn't alone, but I certainly felt lonely. For months, the constant juggling of emotions left me exhausted. As long as I was being pulled in two different directions, I couldn't move forward. I began searching the past for answers. First, I walked alongside my 17-year-old self and tried not to judge her decisions too harshly. Instead, I admired her adventurous spirit. That younger version of myself had respected the patriotism of military service which paired nicely with the cliché desire to escape a small Midwestern town. Then, I sat with my 21-year-old self and tried not to judge her anger too harshly. Instead, I admired her resilience and embraced her melancholy nature. That younger version of myself had caught a glimpse of the ugly parts of life and hadn't shirked away. I eventually spent enough time with myself to carve out an outer life that felt genuine. I accepted that the army had lured in a dreamer and spat out a realist. The rose-colored glasses I had once worn so proudly laid crushed in the desert. That story gave me chills. Mm -hmm. Incredible. So wonderful. Thank you, Anonymous, for being with us here. Thanks so much for having me. And really quickly, before we get started, Life Out Loud just wants to recognize that these kinds of stories can touch people in unexpected ways. So we want to say that if you or someone you know is experiencing difficulties with substance use, there are resources available to you. The SAMHSA National Helpline Again, the SAMHSA National Helpline offers confidential and free help from public health agencies to find substance use treatment and information. They can be reached at 1-800-662-4357. Also, before we get back into the interview, happy Veterans Day, Anonymous. This interview has a very topical backdrop. Tonight, as we're recording this episode, it's Veterans Day. Thank you for your service and thank you for joining us here tonight to discuss this impactful story. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yes, I love how your story actually gave us like the chance to understand what it means to be a soldier. Because I feel as though we're so like focused on what we see on TV. We don't really get to see like behind the scenes. And you didn't you didn't just capture the action filled parts you actually capture like the vulnerable parts of what it means to be a soldier too mm-hmm. so with that being said at several points in your story you mentioned how you did not know up church personally at the beginning and in, in camp you say i sat beside him on the rickety wooden picnic table designated at the smoke pit i didn't smoke and we didn't talk much but we had been together in country the longest our exchanges were not personal in nature. We shared only the present. Even though you did not know him personally, we still can see this connection between the two of you. 
Was having Upchurch during deployment a comfort for you? And consequently, how did his death affect you? I, I think there's definitely a, like a source of comfort, especially when you're overseas and we didn't know each other prior, but I think when you're in like any sort of, you know, tough situation, whether it be work or personal, you get like a natural bond, even if you don't, you know, hit the like key points of like what your favorite things are. There's like a, a natural, like a ex you get through, you know, life experience. So I think there was, like, even though, like, I learned that he'd passed after, you know, time had gone by, we hadn't talked. I think it's, like, an, it's just a, a natural sadness for, like, you just connected on a different level. Like, you know this person in that time experienced the same thing as you, and it was difficult. So you kind of feel, like, that loss. It's It's a different kind of loss. But, yeah, there definitely was, like, just a sadness for what he'd gone through and what he, you know, his life being cut uh, short. Yeah. Yeah. So after deciding not to reenlist, you go back home and you describe a hard transition for yourself back to civilian life. You say, I felt split between different versions of myself. Who I was in the mirror was not the same person reflected in the eyes of my loved ones or colleagues. And it surprised me how many memories were unfamiliar to me. Suddenly, in a room full of my closest relatives, I wasn't alone, but I certainly felt lonely. So many people cannot imagine what this transition is like. Can you share more about the veteran experience and how loved ones can best show support when people return home? Yeah, um, for me especially, I think the transition was difficult because I had joined the Army very young, so straight out of high school, so you don't have that life experience outside of family like you've never experienced a civilian like world on its own so i think mm -hmm. when i left the military i kind of didn't have that i had my family was my only support system really and they had never you know experienced the military they didn't understand that they knew me as childhood me you know like the little little girl they mm -hmm. saw grow up so i think a big part and this isn't for every you know every veteran will handle things differently but i think it's just not pushing anything like not I know a lot it's like this urge to like talk about things they don't understand but I think sometimes silence just silent understanding and like letting things uh carry out on their own like trying to help that transition but not being too involved in like trying to bring up the past or trying to you know force questions um out of your soldier in your life so I think just being there is like the best happy medium. Thank you so much for sharing that because I think it's important for anyone who finds even any support role in someone's life, but especially something as specific as this, where I feel like everyone knows a soldier that has come home. Everyone knows a veteran. And I think people really want to be like, do you want to talk? <laughs> and that person might not necessarily be equipped to talk about what that veteran in their life wants to talk about, you know? Mm. So, and I think that person recognizes that too. And is like, um, I, I feel like I want to give you an answer. I want to talk to you because that's what you want. But, you know, just giving people the space to kind of open up as much as they wish and just kind of be there for them in general. I think it's just so important to know. So thank you for giving us that, that important information. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think in a world full of like a lot of noise, a lot of the times we forget how much a presence with silence matters and means. And not only in like this specific situation, but whenever somebody's going through something or anything, just having the presence of somebody else there with nothing else can be more than what they wanted or more than what they needed. Yeah. Yeah. That is a very good point. Uh, to, To move on from that, there is this beautiful visual conclusion that you leave with us at the end of your story. You say, I accepted that the army had lured in a dreamer and spat out a realist. The rose-colored glasses I had once worn so proudly lay crushed in the desert. This really sums up your journey in a short way, and it makes it clear that you are so proud of not being able to go back to being the person you were before these experiences. So I have to ask, how does your time in the Army still affect your day-to-day life or how you see the world, if at all? Um, I think it's definitely a, a strange mix because um, I definitely haven't been out too long. It's been a couple of years now, but um, it's kind of strange. It's like, a, it still feels a bit like a split because it is such a different, like me being a student now versus me being full-time military. It's so different. Um, it definitely like affects as far as being a little bit less um, naive, I guess. I, I don't mean that in like a bad way, but definitely when I was, I, I joined 17. So I had this idea of just the world in general. You're very like, I grew up in a small town um, and my family stayed in that small town. So now I'm a bit more worldly, but in also in a good way, uh, I understand more about like other cultures. I'm more open to new ideas. So I think there's like good and bad to this like growth as going out into the world and kind of discovering yourself and like everything around you. So I think the army did a great job of making me more well-rounded, I think, to like who I am today. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting seeing how the army was able to teach you certain things, not only about yourself, but also about life in general. But with that being said, is there anything that you would like listeners to take away from your story? I would like listeners to, I think, accept that, like, life isn't going to go specifically one way. I think it's important to learn a lot about, take the time to, like, learn who you are. Um, I think a lot of times we're so eager to, like, reach end points and end goals in our life. We don't, like, see how we fit there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that was, like, a big thing for me. I wanted to be, like, a student. I wanted to be a civilian, but who I was didn't like fit that. So I had to work on like just getting to like know what worked for me, what made me happy. So I think accepting like where you are in life, understanding like how to evolve from that and being open to that kind of change is really important, regardless of, you know, whether you're a soldier or civilian, whoever you are. That's such a good lesson to take away. Something that a lot of us can relate to. And I think anyone, like you said, no matter who you are in life can definitely take that lesson. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing. And again, thank you for being here with us tonight. No problem. I really, I enjoyed this. It's nice to, you know, share a story and know others enjoyed reading it. So I, so I appreciate you letting me come on. 
Thank you so much for your service you. and for being here today. No problem. This story is by an author and previous host on the podcast, Brianna Harrell. A New York City native, Brianna Harrell is a recent John Jay graduate with a degree in forensic science and a minor in creative writing. Where science and art collide is where Brianna resides, in a lab performing an experiment or working as an assistant at CUNY. As digital art assistant at Life Out Loud, she oversees the website image selection for each story. When Brianna isn't writing, procrastinating work, or singing her head off, she can be found binge-watching her favorite TV shows, attending concerts, or snuggling up to a really great book. One day soon, she hopes to find herself in grad school, in a job she loves, traveling to different parts of the world, or a mix of the three. Let's take a listen to Brianna's story entitled, I Was Frida and He Was Vincent. Part 1. Dad always kept his portraits where he kept his heart, hidden behind the mahogany wooden dresser, collecting furballs of dust and particles at the dresser's feet. Slick black charcoal stained drawings of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. lay slumped against each other, trapped in a confined space where the dresser almost greets the wall. They've been there for as long as I can remember, like a time capsule from another space or time. Even when he left during the bitter winter, he cleaned out the master bedroom for every cent he spent on it. He left nothing in its wake, except the Malcolm X's and the Martin Luther King's. The only pages left from his role in my life were the charcoal stained faces that stayed behind. Dad didn't always seem so cold hearted and calculated. I remember the parts of my childhood with him being one huge party. Some days we would stay up binge-watching Harry Potter movies because, well, it's freaking Harry Potter, and an opportunity lost on an all-day marathon was one wasted. Or other days when I would come running into their bedroom, jumping all over his back like he was a plush toy. Usually the result ended with a huge thud that rocked the bed and elicited a victorious yell all the way from downstairs by mom who hated, and I mean hated, loud noises being made. Anytime I'd hear that blood-boiling tone from mom, I'd almost shit my pants. But dad, so cool, calm, and collected, always covered my tracks with a beaming smile on his face, chuckling at my overly expressive reactions. And then there were those special days where he'd take me places. Even when he got off a grueling shift at work, he'd driven my friends and I to concerts. He never complained about how tired he might have been, just snickered and laughed at how starstruck I always got. When I'd eventually tell him all the dreams I had for myself, to pursue music, to write that bestseller, to photograph all around the world, he never shut me down. I remember him simply saying, you can be anything you put your mind to. And this is how it usually was. He'd listen to whatever childlike problem I had, shake his head every so often at things he found interesting, and gave me the verdict on it. We'd laugh a few years down the line at how much I stressed the little things, and he'd say, that's life for you. But when it came to art, or rather, his art, he tensed up like he'd been stung by a wasp several times. Part 2 
book reports. Every kid at some point in their life had to do them, including me. Although unlike all the other kids on my block, it seemed like my teachers demanded the most. They wanted a full report with a drawing from a scene of the book as the front cover. Sometimes I wondered if they were really trying to kill our little 10-year-old souls. Naturally, I'd run to my dad. I'd seen the portraits when I was younger and other pictures he drew or photographs he took from my mom. So I knew my book reports would be so bomb that it would for sure impress my teacher. But whenever I went to ask him for help on a book report, he'd shrug or walk away saying things like, I'm sorry, I'm already doing something. Or have your mom do it. It was like asking him struck a nerve so deep that he would give anything to cover it up, even if that meant leaving his only daughter high and dry. Mom always picked up where he left off, using her best drawing skills to bring any book report to life. We had a system going from there on in, and sometimes she'd draw ridiculous stick figures, and I'd draw flowers or dolphins, or that one time I traced over this unicorn and made it my own. She'd then slap it on the fridge and kept it there, even when the colors faded and the majestic unicorn looked more like a moose. There was one book report he helped, and that wasn't without the forceful pushing and guilt tripping of mom. You can't say no to Madam C.J. Walker. She's one of your people. My mother firmly argued. I stood peeking from behind her, shaking my head up and down, agreeing with her point. So? Look, you told me to take out the garbage and do the bill, so that's what I'm going to do, my father retorted. Mom was not having it, though. Her hands placed on her hips, her stance leaned forward. Don't use that as an excuse. You don't have to do those things right now at this instant. Cornered, he couldn't really say anything else. He's going to do it. Get your stuff ready, okay? My mom said to me, guiding me towards the stairs to grab my stuff. As I ascended up the stairs, I could still hear the conversation from below. You need to help your daughter out this once. It's not fair to her. My mother had tried to whisper, but let's be honest, she was never really good at that. I watched diligently as he worked on my book report cover for me, my first taste of watching an artist do their magic. I imagine that maybe this is what Van Gogh looked like when he painted that replica on our living room wall. Something like this, I hope. That night, my nosy self couldn't help it. I had to know. How come you don't draw anymore? You're so good at it, I asked. I just don't have time anymore. I may have been only 10, but I knew way better than that. He had loads of time between working at an auto shop a block away and picking me up from school every now and then. Just excuses. But I never told him that. Part 3 One day, I asked my mom, mainly because my curiosity got the best of me, and I longed to know why someone with as much talent as my father could just release his dream into the thin air. Poof! Just like that. She said, before you came along, he worked for an advertising company out in Jersey doing graphic design. He went to college in Florida for that too. He did what? I only ever remembered him working auto shops or that one time he worked for a bit at Kid City. I guess that makes sense since those were the only jobs I'd known he'd worked since I was born. How come he's not doing that anymore, I wondered, a bit too out loud. Too loud that my mother answered my thought. 
Well, in order for me to go back to work, your father decided to be a stay-at-home dad for a while. He worked at stores near home so he could be around in case something happened, and of course, to take care of you. And suddenly, it all clicked. My face contorted into an O-shape, as mom said, but I've been trying to get him to do it again because he's so talented. Think about it, we could even sell some of his stuff during the holidays, mom happily said. I laughed thinking to myself, anything to make more money. That was mom for you. Yeah, that would be so awesome, I exclaimed. So we got to work to rejuvenate his interest in his art. We coerced him with dozens upon dozens of art material, sketchbooks and watercolor paints and acrylic galore. Sometimes I'd find them thrown in the back of the closet or hidden beneath gigantic piles of useless papers. I guess he didn't want to be reminded of a life he left behind a long time ago, right around the time I popped up. Part 4 I didn't really feel it when Dad left. He packed up his things and left for a new life with his new preppy white mistress, even though he never explicitly said that. He'd shut the door on his old life, one of over two decades, a failed relationship, and an 18-year-old daughter. And I'm almost certain he never did his art. Without dad, mom and I seemed to bud heads more often than not. On one occasion, the distances between us became more defined when an argument about a concert erupted into a full-fledged battle. Why can't you understand this is what I like to do? It's only one night, and it isn't even a school night. I threw my hands in the air, gesturing my distress on the situation. Because it's stupid, it's ridiculous, and you know it. You need to grow the fuck up, Mom said, almost too coolly. I knew that if I continued, the tension would shoot up like a rocket. But this was something I could not shy away from anymore. And then what I'd said next, about how it's not stupid when it's something I want to do one day, pursuing music and performing on a stage, that really boiled her over until all the molecules that held her together spilled out onto the living room floor. I thought, maybe it was all fun and games when I was a eager young child, drawing pictures of lopsided cartoon characters and unicorns that turned into moose, or singing so loudly in the shower every day that the neighbors heard me. Maybe chasing down the reality of a far-fetched dream was all too much for her. She was shedding down the layers of me, leaving me in skin and bones. She had a knack for that. If words could cut like actual knives, hers was a 14-inch samurai sword, the kind in those movies my dad used to watch. I kept on thinking, while she rambled on about my priorities in life and sticking to the practical stuff, what would my father say? Would he defend my honor against the grueling crusade my mother was on? Would he remind me that I could be anything I wanted as long as I put my mind to it? Mom used to think so, and I wondered if he did too. I thought of that through the insults and jabs to my gut. Since then, I've long given up the fantasy that he would come to my defense one day. We don't talk much these days. When we do... It's all practical and technical stuff. It's about tuition money 
and health insurance. It's about child support and school and one-word answers. Two or three calls a month. No talk about dreams or aspirations, just about if I'm doing what I have to do. The calls are never about the things that used to connect us. They used to remind me that I had more of my father than his face and big feet. Part 5 It's late 2016 and my cousin, best friend, and I are cleaning out the master bedroom. My uncle's moving in soon and having another body in the house will be weird but comforting all the same. We're shuffling through the room, uncovering old wounds left behind when I see them. From the corner of my eye, I see the side profile of the charcoal stained portraits, ones I admired growing up. I leave them where they are because it seemed like they were at home. The stubbed paintbrushes and sketchbooks reemerge from their dusty corners as well, looking weathered and torn up. But what catches my eye the most are what's on the dresser. The rainbow of crested colors splayed on the corner of the dresser are all too familiar. They look odd sitting there, amongst the newer items of the bunch, or even the older documents, the ones that turned a pale yellow over time. It almost looked like the curls of the paper enclosing their fragile bodies formed distinguishable frowns. Maybe they were sad about the same thing I was. Wow, what a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing. Oh, thanks guys. So powerful. So Brianna, thank you so much for being here. That story was beautiful. Um, the title of your story, I was Frida and he was Vincent, is very unique. You mentioned the artist Vincent van Gogh once in your story with the replica painting in your living room. So where does Frida come into play with your story and what is the correlation between these artists, you and your father? So Frida comes into play because when I was younger, she was the first POC artist that I learned about um, either through art or through art history. So mm. seeing someone who was who had a unibrow, who had a little bit of a mustache, who kind of looked like me sort of in color. Right. I, that was something that resonated so much with me. Um, I should have mentioned it in the story somehow, but that's, that's where I was doing the comparison. And then the Vincent van Gogh, we had a painting in our living room and that was something that I saw all the time. So that was kind of the comparison. And also I used to think me and my dad were kindred spirits or like one of, one and the same, I guess. So that's why I did the comparison, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So artistic. <laughs> Speaking of art, this is such a visual piece. I noticed a lot of mentions of color from the sort of black stained charcoal paintings at the beginning to the rainbow colors at the end, the change in colors in the old documents and the fading of color in your refrigerator drawings. Is there a symbolism to the use of color and moving your piece along that you'd like your audience to take away from this? So originally I, I didn't really realize there was a symbolism between, of color between all the things that I mentioned in the story. Um, so I, I, I don't know about, I guess people can interpret it the way they do. Those were the literal colors of the stuff mm. that I found and throughout my life. Um, I guess you can take it that sometimes things fade over time 
like the unicorn that turned into a moose, it actually lost its color as well. And same thing with the, uh, at the ending with those past, those uh, rainbow colored, I don't even know what they were, but rainbow colored something, mm -hmm. uh, they also faded as well. So, you know, sometimes that's just how life is, I guess. Like oh. the, the dream, like the dream itself faded. Yeah. yeah. Sort of like how color becomes sort of a part of identity in some ways. Yeah, exactly, yeah. With that being said, reading the piece, we're left wondering what your dad, why your dad shied away from his art, but still keeping the portraits around represented wasted dreams and aspirations or a secret that was always remembered yet really articulated. Did you ever learn more about your dad's complicated relationship with art? Um, I actually never did. Um, after that initial conversation, I got little tidbits, but it wasn't anything concrete. Although I will admit that a few months ago, he moved into a new apartment and he has a sunroom, which um, people have sunrooms still. I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> I didn't know that either. <laughs> um, so I mentioned, he mentioned that he want to put an easel and I was like, oh, so maybe, uh, but you know, to be continued, but other than the rest of his history, it's not something that he talks about. Um, it's not a subject that I talk to him about either, I guess. Maybe this will probe me to actually uh, reach out to him about it, but yeah, it's definitely something that wasn't talked about a lot, yeah. Because mm -hmm. yeah. what, what struck me about the piece was that he kept them. Because I feel like, oh, if he was really, like you know trying to stay away from art or or you know just had um just wanted to get away from it in a sense like maybe he would have thrown them out so that one piece that like they're hidden away like all of his art supplies his portraits they're hidden away a little bit but he still has them around and mm -hmm. I think that's that's powerful and it's something that if you ever learn can you just let us know? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just really fascinating to see his relationship to, to his work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I also, I also found interesting was um, how he kind of always pushed you to pursue your dreams, but he kind of never pushed himself. Um, mm -hmm. why, do you, why do you think that was? Well, I think, I mean, I'm not a parent, but I can assume as a parent, you want your kid to do everything that they want to do. And then, you know, because they're a kid, they have so much childlike wonder. They have so many dreams for themselves. And I don't know, maybe you just didn't feel like, I don't want to shut her down, that this path could be a hard one. And most art paths are hard ones. That's just how it is, I guess. Um, but as as an adult and as I'm older, I can understand that he had to do practical things to survive. He had to have a job. That wasn't something that it would be unknown at the end of the day. So I can understand why he wanted me to pursue things. And maybe in some ways he was living through me or maybe he just wanted me oh. to do something that he never did. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful. With all of that being said, what would you like listeners to take away from the story? I think I'd want listeners to take away that dreams matter. Yeah. And uh, 
what you dream about when you're a young kid, you know, in your classrooms or in your actual dreams, they matter. And Mm -hmm. even if your parents sometimes don't understand, you should still try to pursue them at every cost. And I think that's what I want people to take away from it because I feel like it's one of the saddest things when people give up on their dreams. So I never want anybody to do that. I guess when we're kids and stuff, dreams are our way of viewing the world, you know? Like when when we're kids, we don't have the filter that we do now, like, oh, the societal acceptance, you know? Or the fear. (laughs) Practicality. Money. Oh, yes, money. Like how many people... (laughs) Like how many people become business become business people and just sound that it is weave this out of the interview, but how many people become business people because like they need the money? And I'm like, yeah, who the heck walks up to their parents as like, I, mommy, I want to file taxes. Like you either want to be an astronaut or a lawyer or a doctor. Nobody grows up to want to file taxes. <laughs> Give me that crap. Um, Thank you, Brianna, for that really powerful like message at the end it's something that I think we hear about so much but having like stories like this that really put it in context and seeing how someone who's kind of pushed their dream aside like interacts with another person who has dreams you um it's it's just it just makes it more real you know so I hope people take this as a sign to keep going to keep (laughs) their dreams Yes. And thank you so much for being here with us today, Brianna. Thanks so much for having me, guys. That concludes our third episode of the fifth season, His Whole World. We are also excited to bring you new stories soon, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes content. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors. Our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you loved these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.